Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. As many of you may know, I am also an author and I am currently, as of tomorrow, I will be starting work on my second book, which is going to be about con women. So con artists who also happen to be broads. It's going to be amazing. The stranger with a frank, honest face who wants to make you an offer you can't refuse is a woman this time. Um, And I'm really looking forward to You know what? I'll be honest. I'm looking forward to the book being out in the world. But first, I have to write it. I was actually panicking recently at the thought of, you know, how much writing and research I have to do in order to make this book even just a rough draft, not to mention an actual book with a cover and everything. But then I realized something about criminal broads. I realized that, you know, I've been doing this podcast since May. And every episode of Criminal Broads, if you put it in a Microsoft Word document, is about as long as a book chapter. So all of a sudden, I was like, wait, I've basically been writing two book chapters a month for the past nine months. I can totally do this book. Anyway, my second book is going to be called Confident Women, tentatively, and it is coming out from Harper Perennial uh, sometime in the future. Don't worry, I will definitely let you know about it. Um, But that's just a little bit about my life lately. If you are enjoying the pod, I would absolutely die of honor if you would consider leaving a review somewhere, maybe iTunes, or consider becoming a monthly patron of the pod at patreon.com criminal, patreon.com slash criminal broads, sorry, um, where you'll get behind the scenes content bonus episodes, etc. Both of those things are extraordinarily helpful to me and believe you me, I notice when you do it. I shriek with joy. I release a white dove into the air. I weep. I love it. So thank you to everyone who's done that. Um, Okay, so last week or last episode, I promised you some cult stuff in this episode, and I am here today to deliver on that promise. Today, we're going to talk about a type of criminal that is pretty rare, a female cult leader. If you listen to episode four, you might remember our girl Jasmine. Remember, we were all really mad at her and just couldn't believe her. <laughs> she uh, is kind of a cult leader in that she has these weird preachings and people follow her and it ends up ruining people's lives. But the woman I want to talk to you about today makes Jasmine look amateur. This woman is a next level cult leader and she deserves a place in history next to Jim Jones, Charles Manson, David Koresh, and so on. You'll see a lot of similarities between these famous male cult leaders and her, but then sometimes she does bizarre stuff that only a woman could pull off. Um, So, you know, I think you will I don't think you're going to like her, but I think I, ho- I hope you'll find this story interesting. Her name is Anne Hamilton Byrne, and she led a cult in Australia known as the Family or the Brotherhood or the Great White Brotherhood, which, by the way, in that case, white is a reference to angels, heavenly light, ah, that kind of thing. Uh, it's not a reference to race, even though it sounds very shady today. Sometimes they were also called the Group, the Lodge. They didn't really... Call- 
use these nickname use these nicknames that much on themselves because they didn't really think of themselves as a cult, which is kind of oops. Um, so you're going to hear from two experts as I tell you the story. Uh, these two people have been working on Anne's story for years and years. They are... Chris Johnston. I'm a journalist in Melbourne and I'm the co-author of The Family with Rosie. And I'm Rosie Jones. I'm a Melbourne-based filmmaker. Um, I recently made a feature-length documentary about Anne Hamilton Byrne and the cult of the family and co-wrote a book about it with Chris Johnston. So if you like what you hear in this episode, I encourage you to check out their work. Um, The documentary is called The Family. Their book is called The Family, The Shocking True Story of a Notorious Cult. And then next month in Australia and hopefully eventually in the U.S., Rosie is releasing a three-hour documentary series on TV called The Cult of the Family, which, as you can tell, there's so much information on them that, you know, it couldn't fit into a one-hour documentary. So she's releasing a three-part one now. Um, And you can buy the book and the one-hour documentary at thefamilysect.com. That's S-E-C-T, sect, or, of course, wherever books are sold. So... Let's dive into the story now. Okay, we're headed to Australia in the 1960s, specifically to Melbourne and its surrounding wooded, kind of creepily uh, unwatched suburbs. Melbourne in the 1960s, where just like in the United States of America, people are starting to reject old ways of thinking and desperately search for truth. Anything more beautiful than a glowing mother surrounded by her children? When you saw Anne with her children, it was like a scene from a painting. A lovely woman, pregnant with triplets, wearing a handmade maternity dress and a straw sun hat laden with flowers. This isn't her first pregnancy, of course. You can tell because she's surrounded by 11 other children. She's walking through a field, a field of flowers, of course, surrounded by those darling children, all of whom have the same haircut, the same bleached white hair, and the same old-fashioned clothes. They look so alike that their faces blend together, and maybe that's the point. They look so alike that your eye is naturally drawn to their mother. She does have a stunning face, a mix between supermodel and Madonna, Back at her house, her photo is everywhere, in every room, right next to photos of Jesus. Sometimes her children do yoga together. Sometimes they meditate. Sometimes they listen to her sermons. She records them on a tape when she can't be there in person. It's probably a bit confusing for her children when they pray, since they're always seeing the face of their mother right next to Jesus, If they asked her who they were supposed to pray to, she'd probably tell them, Pray to me. The answer is me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
your mother. Hamilton Byrne was born Evelyn Grace Victoria Edward in 1921 in a town on the southernmost tip of Australia, a couple hours east of Melbourne. She was born into a family where women were haunted by violence and mental illness. Her mother, Florence, spent 27 years in asylums, and when she wasn't claiming that she could speak to the dead, she was allegedly setting her hair on fire in the street. One of Anne's sisters was also institutionalized for a while. Another sister was murdered by her husband. Her aunts were institutionalized in England. And her father, when faced with this cursed family of agonized women, had a tendency to run away. At one point, with her father on the run and her mother in an asylum, Anne was put into an orphanage. Despite the tragedy of her early years, or perhaps because of the tragedy, Anne always had a thing for the more theatrical side of life. She liked glamour, color, a compelling backstory. Later, when she told the story of her childhood, she filled it not with solitude and madness, but with a sort of dazzling mysticism. She said that her parents were deeply enlightened, that they studied with gurus at Indian ashrams, that they were well-connected, and that they could astral travel out of their bodies and into the spirit world. They weren't leaving her, you see. They were projecting their astral bodies throughout the universe. As a teenager, Anne grew to love makeup and fancy clothes. She continued to develop her theatrical flair. One classmate remembered her saying that she wanted to be an actress, and she herself said later that she'd wanted to be a famous opera singer. We don't know much else about her teenage years, but actress, opera singer, it seems that from a young age she was yearning for the spotlight. And there was no denying that the spotlight would have loved her. She was gorgeous, luxuriant red hair, full lips, and eyes that were a cross between the sultry gaze of a starlet and the transcendent stare of the Madonna. At age 20, Anne married a man named Lionel Harris. She had abandoned her given name and was calling herself Anne Hamilton at this point, another gesture at drama and reinvention. And they had a daughter, Judith, who would later change her name and cut off all ties to her mother. After 14 years of marriage, Lionel died in a car crash, and Anne scooped up her daughter and disappeared, leaving all of her possessions behind. Four years later, she reappeared, at a yoga class in Melbourne, claiming to be 30, she was actually 38, and saying that she was a physiotherapist. There was no evidence that she had ever trained as such. She was there, she said, to become a yoga teacher. Everyone agreed that Anne was an excellent yoga teacher. She had an almost palpable charisma, and when she spoke to you in that warm, loving, honeyed voice, you felt like she really knew you. Anne had a tricky habit of secretly finding out things about people and then surprising them with her seeming omniscience. 
I sense that you're planning a family, she'd say, or I see travel in your future. As you can imagine, that really impressed people. It also helped that she could be pretty terrifying when she wanted to be. When a man in her yoga class disagreed with her, she muttered, He's not going to be here tomorrow. He's going to be very sick. And when he did end up sick, well, people looked at Anne with a renewed sense of awe. Her classes were mostly full of wealthy, middle-aged women who were turning to yoga because they were in the thick of midlife crises. As the 1950s made way for the 60s, yoga was becoming trendy among the bored and wealthy in Melbourne, and where others might see these overprivileged wives as a cliché, Anne saw them as a prime opportunity. She made them her projects. They came to her anxious and existential, with the world telling them that they were past their prime, that their waists were thickening, that their bored husbands were about to start eyeing young secretaries, and that their grown children were never going to call home. And here was Anne, greeting them with those eyes that seemed to really see them, and telling them that they were not pitiful, used-up housewives, but that they were, quote, midway through their physical incarnation. And that only now, only in middle age, were they ready to enter fully into a beautiful spiritual life. She encouraged them to, quote, sever ties with old things, including their husbands, so that they could fully enter into this new life full of, quote, powers and blessings and beauties. This message was incredibly appealing, and it served to bind these women closer and closer to her. Soon, her yoga students were starting to act a bit more like followers. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, people still have emotional needs. And, for example, quite a lot of the people who came into the cult and became very devoted to Anne really lacked a mother in childhood. So they, they were looking for a mother figure, and Anne was actually very loving. When people first joined the cult, she would welcome them in, if she could see an advantage, she would welcome them in and be extremely, love bomb them, I guess is the um, terminology. She would be very loving and they would be caught up in the web before they knew it. Who knows how long Anne would have continued spreading these fairly harmless messages if she hadn't met someone who was both very influential and very curious. In 1961, she was introduced to Dr. Rainer Johnson, a leading intellectual figure in Melbourne. He was the master of Queen's College at Melbourne University and a respected physicist, but he'd always been drawn toward the more mystical, parapsychological realm, which made him the perfect mark for Anne. She researched him beforehand, as she was wont to do, and then showed up at his house looking all glowy and ethereal and startled him by saying, I understand you are shortly going on a visit to India, which he was. By the way, Anne's glowy and ethereal looks were a key part of her allure, and by 1961 she was maintaining those looks by dyeing her hair blonde and getting regular facelifts, so that she always looked about 10 years younger than she actually was. She told Dr. Johnson and his wife that they'd have to be very careful on their trip because his wife could get sick or even die... And later, when his wife did end up getting very sick on the trip, that was enough to catapult Dr. Johnson into a state of real belief. He was in. All in. After all, he'd been looking for answers all his life, and this mysterious woman seemed like she had them. Whoever Anne told him she was, 
he'd believe it. Whoever she wanted to be introduced to, he'd introduce her. Her requests were simple. Introduce me to everyone influential you know, and believe that I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As the 1960s swelled and truth seekers across the globe got themselves into trouble by taking too much acid and listening to anyone who had the vaguest whiff of spirituality about them, Anne and Dr. Johnson started to reach their tentacles through the upper crust of Melbourne. Dr. Johnson introduced Anne to his friends, doctors, lawyers, psychiatrists. These wealthy, influential people turned into yoga students and then into followers. Anne would identify them as spiritually vulnerable and seeking, which they were, who isn't? And she would convince them that she could help if they listened to her sermons and perhaps underwent some therapy at a private hospital called New Haven that happened to be owned by one of her followers and staffed by psychiatrists who also obeyed her. With Dr. Johnson signing off on Anne, she was able to spread her message through echelons of money and power that she probably would have never been able to infiltrate all by herself. She handpicked her cult members. She, she really didn't want people who didn't have money or didn't have status. She wasn't, um, she wasn't the sort of cult leader who welcomed anybody in. They had to have a purpose, and she had to be able to see how she could use them or gain from their membership. Like so many other cult leaders before and after her, she preached a hodgepodge of Eastern religions and Christianity, with a lot of easily digestible talk about how all you needed was love thrown in. Her most audacious claim, though, was the bit about being Jesus. She said that when Jesus came into the world for the first time, the world wasn't ready for his teachings of love, forgiveness, wisdom, and charity. And so God had to try again, sending his son back to earth in the form of Anne. All her followers had to do was obey her absolutely, without question, forever and ever, amen, and she would lead them into heaven, saving them from the interminable cycle of reincarnation that they were currently locked in. Why had Christ come back to earth as a woman? Because, said Anne, if he'd been sent back to earth looking just like he did in early AD, he'd be recognized and persecuted. Because of the risk of persecution, her followers had to keep this whole Jesus is back and her name is Anne thing totally secret. Otherwise, things could get real messy, right? The motto that she developed for her followers emphasized this need for secrecy. It was unseen unheard, unknown. I always viewed it as, um, as, as a kind of a threat as well. So it was, it was sort of, it hung over the members' heads um, as a sort of a threat to keep their mouths shut and to keep their heads down. By 1964, Dr. Johnson had purchased eight acres of land across the road from Anne's home in a quiet tree-filled suburb called Fernie Creek. The whole area was perfect for people who wanted to keep their activities unseen, unheard, and unknown, as it was surrounded by national parks. They called the property Santinicatan, 
and it became their center of activity, a place where Anne would give her sermons. That same year, Anne met a former naval officer named Michael John Riley, who would become her second husband, but only for a very short time. For most of their marriage, she kept him at New Haven, her own private psychiatric hospital. By 1970, the house on the property was too small for Anne's growing followers, so they built a lodge which fit 100-plus people and which was carefully designed to let Anne make a grand entrance into the chapel as classical music thundered through the speakers. She loved music, by the way, and was known to burst into operatic song at the drop of a hat. Now, if the Christian church expressed their unity and belief by taking the Lord's Supper— the Church of Anne also had their version of the bread and the wine. Theirs took the form of hallucinogenic drugs. Here's the thing about starting a cult. It's not that hard to get spiritually minded people to come to your yoga class or maybe even to listen to a lecture or two. But as the months stretch into years and you start acting more and more insane, which is the cult leader way, you have to have some really powerful tool in your back pocket to keep your followers in line. That tool can be a very scary idea, like the government is going to come and snatch your children away if you leave this cult. It can be something supernatural, like you're going to miss the extraterrestrial spaceship that will take us all to the next level if you leave the cult. It can be plain old violent. We will kill you or destroy your career if you leave the cult. Anne's tool was LSD, which she used to splinter the minds of her followers, convince them that she was, in fact, the Christ, and keep them in her thrall. She would tell them when and where to take the drugs, and some said she kept an entire jar full of LSD blotters on her desk. She called these trips clearings, as in, a way to clear out their past, a concept that she might have been stealing from Scientology. When her members were hallucinating, she liked to check in on them, ask them questions about their darkest desires, try to get them to reveal their weaknesses, and urge them to discover who they were in past lives. Some of her followers came out of the trips insisting that they used to be Beethoven or someone from the Bible. Sometimes the doctors and nurses at the New Haven Hospital would administer the drugs on Anne's command. Other times she'd do it herself, often injecting her followers with LSD. Sure, her beauty and charisma and mental tricks were important when it came to keeping people under her thrall, but the LSD, which she actually sourced legally through New Haven, was perhaps her most important tool. As one of her ex-husbands said once, she could charm the very birds from the trees, but she couldn't do anything without the use of a needle. As far as we know, Anne would float in and out of the room while people were under the drug and she would push ideas at them. She would, um, she would always be pushing uh, or, or trying to find out or trying to convince those people that in some way they had be, been sexually abused or that they had done something sexual wrong or that, you know, they were homosexual or something else, that she, she wanted to get them to admit that so that she would then store up that information because they were in a vulnerable state. They wouldn't necessarily remember what they'd said, and she would then be able to use that. It would hang over their head as a kind of a threat. It was quite a sinister procedure, and she was also trying to convince them or get them to say back, back to her that she was a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. 
Dr. Johnson took LSD and hallucinogenic mushrooms rapturously. And he would spend hours staring at the face of his beloved Christ Jesus, a.k.a. Anne. He wrote in his diary, Her face became, to my human eyes, supernaturally beautiful, and she spoke with authority and divine power, as one might imagine the Christ would do if speaking in the first person to each person there, looking around slowly from one person to another, and then at each of us individually, she said, Do you know who I am? I and my father are one. My peace I leave with you. You will be my gurus, all of you. Those lines that Anne was saying were a poor man's imitation of the Bible. But if you were on LSD, the whole thing must have been incredibly compelling. Never mind that one member got permanent brain damage from the drugs, another lost 90% of her vision, and five of them killed themselves. When you were high and Anne was looming over you, staring at you with those eyes, it must have all seemed so real. And then Anne got the notion in her head that she wanted to start a family. A really big family. It was 1971 when Anne began collecting children. Her plan was to raise them in perfect conditions so that they could spread her word throughout the world, slash survive the apocalypse, and then repeople the earth with perfect little humans who looked just like Anne. Sure, they wouldn't be her biological children, but that was nothing a little blonde hair dye couldn't fix. So she roped her followers into the plan and started adopting. It was a dastardly um, scheme that... that you would hope could never happen now because of all the checks and balances in the in the health and hospital and sort of social welfare system. But essentially, um, by then she she had or had started to develop a network of compliant um, cult members who were nurses and doctors and social workers in. Um, a handful of hospitals in Melbourne and she was able to, through them, um, find out when single mothers were giving birth to children that were going to be up for adoption because, remember, back then um, uh, it was um, it, it was a different um, circumstance to now and women were often uh, compelled to give up those children and Anne was able to find out where, when, why, how, and who, and literally take the child or have the child taken. And then through further cult adults, such as lawyers and whatnot, fiddle the paperwork so that it appeared they were hers. She had uh, 14 children who she gave the, the surname Hamilton Byrne. Uh, and then she had another group of dis- – and they they lived in the isolated compound up on Lake Eildon. They were looked after by aunties and uncles and uh, Anne and Bill. That They all thought that Anne and Bill were their parents. Then there was another group of kids who would be taken up to, to Lake Eildon on a less regular basis, although 
you know, some stayed there maybe six months, others were there for 10 years, but these kids were called the fosters. And so they knew who their real parents were, but they were taken up to Lake Hilden and they they lived there for various peri- periods of time. Uh, so all in all, she had 28 children that went through the cult. The kids were kept at Anne's lake house called Up Top or Kai Lama. They wore matching clothes, all vaguely old-fashioned, and many of them had their hair cut into the same blunt bob and dyed so blonde it was almost white. Many of the girls were given first or middle names that were a variation on the name, Anne. If you're thinking that a huge group of children in old-fashioned clothes with white hair sounds like something from a horror movie, you're not wrong. In photographs, the effect was unnerving. In person, it was even creepier. One observer noted, When you saw them coming, it was hard to miss. I always got the impression that she was like this spider with all these little baby spiders. However, if you ignored the inherent creepiness of the matching haircuts, it did kind of look like these kids were living great lives. One handyman who worked at Uptop remembered the kids being articulate, polite, well-educated, and very clean and well-dressed. They did yoga, they meditated, they played. Uptop had playgrounds, a sand pit, courts for basketball and badminton, and six vegetable gardens. All in all, it looked like the ideal place to be a kid. Sure, almost every single room had a picture of Anne in it, but she was their mother, and kids love their mother, right? The kids did love Anne, or they longed for her, more accurately, as she was never around. She'd found herself a third husband by that point, a man named William Byrne, and the two of them were often gallivanting around Europe, trying unsuccessfully to get the cult going in England, or luxuriating at one of their mansions in Hawaii. It seemed likely that Anne liked the aesthetics of motherhood more than the actual, you know, motherhood. And I mean aesthetics, quite literally. Anne had taken to faking pregnancies. She was always having her followers sew flowy maternity dresses for her. She would put cushions underneath them. And at one point, she claimed to have given birth to triplets. Of course, her pregnancies had to be the most special pregnancies of all time. She said that during one of them, a UFO flew overhead. Clearly, she liked the idea of herself as some sort of fertile goddess, producing the only humans who would survive the apocalypse. She was even claiming to be pregnant by the age of 56, although as far as her followers knew, she was in her early 40s. The sad side of that is also that uh, Anne, by rumour, apparently had several miscarriages. So she did, there's more to the story, um, which we do reveal in the three-part series um, uh, to her whole her psychology as well. So I think she's a little bit like women who steal babies from prams. I think there was a deep desire there to have more children. And, and I guess perhaps she couldn't. Yeah. So is it, I wonder if it's a desire to just have them or is it a desire to have them and control them? Probably both. Yeah. While Anne was swanning around in her fraudulent maternity clothes, her adopted and foster children were being raised by a group of Anne's female followers called the Aunties. 
The aunties actually paid Anne for the privilege of working at Uptop, even though the house, which was built for a family of about six, was so crowded that there wasn't always a place for them to sleep. Under Anne's sway, the aunties became incredibly cruel. The children were given tiny portions of food, or often denied food altogether. They were beaten with canes for the smallest infraction, like not lining up their shoes properly or leaving on a fan overnight. If the aunties were feeling really vengeful, they'd dunk the children's heads in buckets of water over and over until the kids were pretty sure they were going to drown. One of these children, Ben, said later that the dunking went on, to the point where you are asphyxiated, you're close on blacking out. I just remember my head being put in there, trying to hold your breath as long as possible. You'd begin bobbling. You can't hold it any longer. You're pulled up, gasping for air. When Anne and Bill visited, the children would greet them with relief. But Anne and Bill could be worse than the aunties. They'd beat the children, too. Bill had a horrible temper and would fly into notorious rages. Anne's favorite way to beat the children reflected her sick love of luxury. She liked to use a stiletto heel. Anne had always been hypocritical about all things concerning femininity. She'd berate her female followers for being slutty or seductive, all while using her own seductive charms to get whatever she wanted. As her girls entered puberty, she became obsessed with their perceived sexuality. Actually, her weirdness about their sexuality happened long before these girls were adolescents. One of the girls, Sarah, remembers, she would go into these incredible rages and psychotic outbursts toward us girls where she'd talk about cancerous tumors coming out of female genitals, and she would accuse us of walking in a way that would be trying to attract men. Sarah was five years old when Anne first raved at her like this. As the girls grew older, Anne kept a sharp eye on their weight and prescribed draconian weight loss regimes for them if she thought they weren't skinny enough. When the girls entered puberty, Anne drummed the idea into their heads that their changing bodies were disgusting and filthy as the aunties rationed their pads. Sometimes she accused them of being lesbians, Sometimes she accused them of being straight. The result, remember Sarah, was that the girls were totally confused and uneducated about sex and very innocent but still haunted by this idea that even in their innocence and ignorance, they were totally dirty. Anne liked to make all her children paranoid about the outside world, telling them that the police were there to shoot and rape children, and explaining that the world would be ending soon and that they were supposed to start a new race of humans after the apocalypse, and so they had to be perfect. In order to achieve this perfection, she kept them on an authoritarian schedule. Wake up at 6 a.m., dress in matching tracksuits at 6.10, yoga at 6.30, listen to sermons at 7.30, chanting at 7.45, meditation at 7.55, sprints at 8.10, and finally breakfast, which would be a few pieces of fruit. The rigorous daily schedule was in sharp contrast to the sense of fear and unpredictability that the kids felt at all times, never knowing if they were going to be beaten or starved or dunked into water or hugged. Even maternal love became a form of abuse. Anne knew how to play on her motherness so that the children craved her attention and acceptance. She'd dangle love in front of them and then yank it away at the last minute. 
and she destabilized them even more by randomly declaring that two of them were now twins, or three of them were now triplets, or now they were a different set of triplets. Mad groupings and regroupings that reflected her obsessive need to control every single thing about every single person. But perhaps the worst thing of all was that once these terrified, starved children hit 14, they were given LSD. And lots of it, sometimes for days on end, in an attempt to force them through a clearing. Sarah remembers her first clearing vividly. She thinks it may have lasted for multiple days. On the trip, she was visited by Anne and a doctor, both of whom told her that she needed to repent of her evil, disgusting, slutty desire to be raped. Sarah didn't know what was real and what was a hallucination, but she remembers the doctor cutting into her stomach in order to, quote, mix up your insides so that you will never be able to have children, with Anne in the background yelling, perhaps that will teach you, you whore, you slut. Other children remember Anne asking them strange questions about their sexual fantasies, calling them names, or saying, can you look at why you're so wicked? And through all of this, the kids thought that Anne was their biological mother. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The pretty, mystical yoga teacher had changed over the years. She was now paranoid and cruel and hypocritical and dictatorial. You can say a lot about Anne, but you can't say she wasn't following the Cult Leader 101 handbook pretty closely. She would still preach sometimes about how the answer was love, 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 but her sermons were becoming increasingly demonic and venomous as the years went on, as one journalist reported. In these sermons, she'd rave about her enemies and members that she thought were disobeying her or betraying her. The same journalist wrote, Several former members described the sermons as the rantings of a woman becoming paranoid about losing ultimate control. The lengths Anne would go to for control were both horrifying and kind of ridiculous. Some people reported that she was jealous of the Siddha Yoga movement with its thousands of followers, since her cult only ever boasted a few hundred. She started demanding that her female cult leaders get facelifts from her favorite plastic surgeon and dye their hair blonde or wear blonde wigs so that they'd look more like her. I mean, surely you remember that old quote from Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through looking exactly like me. She forced her members to swap spouses. Sometimes their kids would come home from school to find out that their nuclear family was now completely different. She collected 10% of each follower's income and actually lived a life of very few expenses since her followers would cook and clean for her and wait on her hand and foot, all for free. She liked to preach from a purple throne. 
She demanded that every one of her followers make a blue room in their house. Yes, a blue room where everything was blue with no outside light and with a photo of Anne inside it. They were supposed to meditate every day in their blue room. Just another way that Anne tried to crawl inside every little corner of their lives. And if she was mad at someone, she'd curse them by writing their name on a little slip of paper and freezing it inside an ice cube in a blue ice cube tray. As one journalist wrote, she was a woman who, it seems, set out to control absolutely every waking and sleeping hour of those who crossed her path. Throughout all of this, she was getting really rich. She would persuade older cult adults or people uh, closely linked to older cult adults to um, either transfer or sell their homes to her. The money was also coming from tithes or donations. People were literally giving her money. I mean, as Rosie said before, she she only wanted cult members who were um, wealthy or relatively wealthy. She didn't want like in many other cults, she didn't want hippies or dropouts or students or or people with no coin. She wanted um, white-collar, um, respectable, um, upper-middle-class people, um, and they were giving her money. And she was also, through compliant uh, a compliant lawyer and real estate agent, able to fiddle real estate deals and transfer reasonably expensive homes in, a, in the sort of forested hills just outside of Melbourne to her or to fake names that were her or to people who would then give the money to her. But despite her attempt to turn the entire world into a hellscape of blue rooms and facelifts and mansions that she owned, the power was slowly, slowly slipping from her hands by the 1980s, as three things happened. Her kids became teenagers and started questioning the reality that Anne had constructed for them. A man started making noise about his missing daughter, whose mother was a member of the cult. And, by 1987, Sarah had been expelled from up top and another girl was planning her escape. So Anne's children were finally in the real world. Well, Sarah had been expelled because she was starting to ask questions and, and wanting to be a normal teenager. And so she was already out of the cult um, and trying to survive. Um, Leanne, one of the other children uh, who had tried to escape previously, finally managed to escape and run away. And after a little bit of time, she went to the police and told them what was happening. And Sarah and Leanne and one of the other older girls who'd also got away started talking to police and they realised that there was something going on here that really wasn't quite right. The girls' statements um, all seemed to tally. They um, they were very concerned and they got a um, a warrant to be able to go and remove the children from the sect and then to find out what was really happening. So, so police and um, adoption workers gradually tried to find out who they were by matching birth records and adoption records and deed poll changes and all that kind of stuff. So it was like a bit of a puzzle to try and figure out who these children really were because they didn't know. And, and um, you know, they found out some very strange things that, you know, a couple of the kids were actually the grandchildren of Anne and Bill. And it's some of the, the cult members 
had actually just simply handed over their children and then even from a distance watched them grow up in this group. Very strange relationships and very, uh, very, very difficult to find that out as a, a late teenager. Anne had fled the country in 1986, and so when the police raided Uptop in 1987, she was nowhere to be found. From afar, she insisted that she was facing religious persecution, sending taped sermons to her followers that whined, They put you in the paper. They say you are false. You dare to be true. You dare to walk and not faint in a strength that will never fail you, and so on and so forth. Uptop was raided again in 1988, and this time eight of the aunties were charged, but not with child abuse. They were charged with making false social security claims, as they'd been claiming things like invalid benefits, pensions, and so on, and handing over their checks to Anne. For this, most of them were given brief jail sentences. Still, Anne was nowhere to be found. In December of 1989, the police launched Operation Forest, an attempt to drag Anne back to Australia so that she could be tried for all the crimes that her children were starting to talk about. These children were, of course, deeply traumatized, and it took a while for their stories to come out, especially the stories of drug use. Even adult ex-followers were too terrified to speak up against Anne, so Operation Forest moved slowly, with only the children as their witnesses at first. The problem with the children as witnesses was that they wouldn't be able to get her for the LSD abuse, since it had happened too far in the past and there was no forensic evidence left, and Anne had procured the LSD legally. And, since the children had been staying together since the raid, Anne's hypothetical defense could argue that their testimonies had been contaminated. In other words, that they could have come up with the same story while staying together or even accidentally influenced each other into saying the same story. So Operation Forest had to look for charges that would actually stick, charges that could get Anne extradited back to Australia if they could ever find her. Eventually, they convinced one of her adult ex-followers to speak, and he was able to tell them all about the administrative side of Anne's empire. The forged documents, the sketchy adoptions, the loans she never intended to pay back, and so on. Still, Operation Forest was kind of doomed from the start, even when the search for Anne ballooned to include Scotland Yard, Interpol, and the FBI. They were plagued by budget constraints and the fact that a lot of government agencies didn't seem to want to investigate Anne too much. After all, she had only been able to operate for so long because hospitals hadn't realized that she was pulling off fake adoptions and drugging people left and right, and the police hadn't followed up very hard on calls about the weird things that were happening at Uptop, and so on and so forth. The members of Operation Forest got the frustrating feeling that a lot of important people didn't want to blow Anne's activities out of the water because then their own failings would be revealed, too. After all, Anne's cult had only been able to operate for all these years because it was, from the very beginning, a cult for powerful people. Like a spider in a lair, shooting out strands of silk to catch passing flies, Anne kept in touch with her dwindling followers from afar. She had secret P.O. boxes and unlisted phone numbers, and she would send her followers taped sermons that they were supposed to play at their twice-a-week meetings. 
Sometimes, in these rambling sermons, you could hear her talking to one of her many dogs. She loved animals, in between rhapsodizing about love and persecution. From time to time, she would appear in the media and insist that all of the children had been handicapped and that she just wanted to give these poor, troubled children that no one else wanted a lovely home. She was their mama, after all. After avoiding capture for four years, Anne made a mistake. In May 1993, she called her daughter Sarah on the phone and let it slip that she was staying with her husband Bill at their gorgeous property in upstate New York. That was all she had to say. At the crack of dawn on June 4th, a team of FBI agents and New York State troopers knocked on her door. Bill opened it. Anne had just come into the living room in a robe, fresh out of the shower. The female FBI agent that was there that day told Anne in a calm voice that she was going to have to come with them. But Anne insisted on finding the perfect outfit and doing her makeup before she'd leave, even though the agent told her that this time she couldn't wear a wig. The agent remembers, she was very, very concerned about how she looked before we left that house. Anne and Bill were flown back to Australia And if you're about to stand up and cheer for the fact that she's finally caught, that she's finally going to answer for her decades of horrific crimes and child abuse and obsession with power and delusions of grandeur, hold your applause, because the trial of Anne Hamilton Byrne was the legal equivalent of a souffle slumping down disappointingly when you take it out of the oven. It is very difficult to get an extradition warrant successfully between countries, and so... um, they they had to do a deal so that uh, the police finally agreed that when if if Anne and Bill came home that they would not bring any other charges once they were back because the the main detective Lex the man was concerned that in fact Anne would get away completely if they couldn't figure out an extradition deal that both the U.S. and Australia agreed with she could have slipped through his fingers. They, they they chose to, well, they didn't really have much choice in terms of the extradition. It's very, very complicated, and you have to have a similar penalty in, in the two countries uh, under question, the US and, the, and Australia, a simil, similar penalty for a crime for there to be any possibility of an extradition order. So it's very difficult with bringing cases of child abuse or anything like that because it's just complex. Um and they also had the complexity of not wanting to bring the children or force the children to bear witness in a court because they were concerned that Anne was hiring very good lawyers and that the kids would be ripped to shreds in the court and they felt that that would be very unhealthy for them and for their ongoing survival. So, look, there were, it, it's, there's quite a number of complexities to the, to the um, reason why they were brought back on such skimpy charges, really. And and then, I mean, the disappointing thing is that 
even with those skimpy charges, Anne and Bill managed to get off pretty much scot-free. Yeah, there was a, there was a mix-up between uh, New Zealand and Victorian legislation. So Victoria is the state, where, the state of Australia where Melbourne is, where most of this took place. And there was a, yeah, it's kind of technical, but there was a sort of legal mix-up between New Zealand jurisdiction where one of the frauds was alleged to have taken place and Victoria where they were residents. So, yeah, that complicated things further. It was, but yeah, it was basically a, an absolutely rubbish trial and they got away with it. At the end of the day, the woman who beat children with a stiletto and injected people with drugs and ran a cult where at least five members committed suicide and made a mockery of love and faith and charity pled guilty to one count of conspiring to make a false statement. Bill made the same plea. Basically, she was pleading guilty to the one time she lied about having triplets. The two of them had already served three months in jail. Plus, they were elderly, so the judge elected not to give them any more jail time, but only to find them 5000 Australian dollars, which today would come out to be about 3500 US dollars. This from a woman police estimated was worth $50 million, and whose daughter once estimated that she was worth three times that. The silver lining was that Anne, who had talked about continuing to adopt children, was now foiled from any future nefarious plans. She was just too well-known now. And, despite the smallness of the trial, there was some tiny satisfaction to be taken from the fact that the woman whose motto was unseen, unheard, unknown, was now seen, heard, and known, all without her wigs. She did plead guilty to something, and she was incredibly humiliated. Number one, by being seen in public on television with no wig, that would have been shattering for her. She looked terrible. And also, um, you know, she was Jesus Christ and she thought she was above the law and, in fact, she wasn't. Sarah, her adopted daughter, went to court to hear what Anne's punishment would be and couldn't believe what she heard. It all ended up a farce, she said. She got off. This was an especially hard blow after seeing the aunties get those light sentences for social security fraud and not child abuse. As Sarah said, they didn't go to jail for beating us nearly every single day and starving us for three days at a time. No one got in trouble for that. Ten years after her sentencing, 83-year-old Anne entered a nursing home, lost in the fog of dementia. Her cult had dwindled to almost nothing. One faithful follower, who still visits her to this day, insists that actually she doesn't have dementia, she's in another dimension. She's experiencing, quote, the Christ consciousness. Two of her adopted children ended up successfully suing her, as did two former cult members. But once she was diagnosed with dementia, no one could legally bring a lawsuit against her anymore. As of today, she's still alive, still in a nursing home, almost 100 years old, protected from any real justice or reckoning on this earth. 
by the slow destruction of her own mind. The party line of her remaining followers is that all the children are lying. There was never any abuse, they say, no forced LSD. It was a wonderful childhood. The children are crying victim, doing it for attention. No more questions, please. There's so much about Anne Hamilton Byrne that follows that Cult Leader 101 handbook. The sloppy mixing of Christianity and Eastern religions. The way she exploited the vulnerability and spiritual seeking of the 1960s. The slow creep from feel-good guru to paranoid dictator. The use of drugs as mind control. The brief mention of UFOs. The insistence that everyone listen to her and obey her absolutely, world without end. Amen. Amen. But then there's the stuff that makes her cult so specific and so mysterious. The fact that a woman managed to convince people that she was the Christ. The bizarre and hypocritical obsession with maternity and femininity faking pregnancies while stealing children from their real mothers, wearing a short dress and then screaming at her female followers for doing the same, demanding that everyone have the same high, taut, face-lifted hairline as she did, doing her makeup in front of the FBI. Perhaps, left without any real sense of self by her absentee parents, she constructed a self out of hair and makeup and music and flowy dresses, an ideal self, a powerful and beautiful self that would always be in charge and so would never be alone again. It's tempting to wonder if her abandonment by her mother was what made her try to be the ultimate mother, the mother with the most kids, the most pregnancies, the most perfect family, a mother who created life so well and so continually that she wasn't just a mother. She was a creator. She was a god. I think she really somehow wanted to create for herself the happy family that she didn't have in her own childhood. I think, um, I think she started off with good intentions, but she had, has a, a character that really is voracious and seeking power and you know, needing admiration, just vacuuming all of that up from people. And I think, um, you know, that's her downfall, really. That she, she wanted something good. She had a vision, but because of her own flaws, she was not able to achieve that and, and left so many, so many damaged and unhappy people in her wake. Such a dangerous woman. And, you know, had she been, I think she is mentally ill and I think had she been helped really early on had that been seen earlier all of this could have been avoided you know she's a very clever woman but her cleverness went to the dark side rather than the light mm, the, the whole aspect with the with the children either sort of literally or symbolically is really fascinating too like earlier we were talking about how even after she had been busted, she was still talking about accumulating children or saving, in inverted commas, children or doing something with children. Well, even even before all of this started, she was looking to adopt children with one of her earlier husbands. 
there was always this drive through decades and decades from the 1950s for 40 years. She, she's kind of on record as wanting to or, 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 or being successful in accumulating children that it turns out weren't hers. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of continuum in her life really, isn't it? Like to accumulate a family. Folks, that is the story of Anne Hamilton Byrne, who is still alive to this day, believe it or not. Chris and Rosie actually told me that because she has dementia, they couldn't interview her, not just because she wouldn't really be able to answer questions very well, but because legally they couldn't interview her. They couldn't, they were, they couldn't uh, use quotes that they got from her in the book or the documentary. So that's sort of a frustrating thing about this cult, is that the central figure is... I mean, I guess as she wanted it, unseen, unheard, unknown. Um, so we don't know, you know, if how happy she is now or what she thinks of her life. But from the outside, it really does seem that she has gotten away with it. Chris and Rosie were so awesome to interview. I think you can tell from their quotes, they just have you know, the most insightful things to say about this woman. So if you want to hear the whole interview with them in which they talk more about Anne and her story, go to patreon.com slash criminal broads. Um, if you become a patron at the $5 a month level or up, you'll get bonus episodes and full interviews like that one. All right. Speaking of patrons, I have a new batch of patrons to thank. Um, these people are my new best friends. Hi, how are you? Text me. <laughs> these are the people who've signed up for Patreon since the last episode came out. Um, by the way, if I mispronounce your name, I'm so sorry. I do look up how to mispronounce, I mean, <laughs> oh, Freudian slip. I do look up how to pronounce everyone's name, but do we trust pronouncenames.com? I don't know. So anyway, this episode's criminally fabulous. Patrons are Aaron Gingrich, who is actually my cousin, and you guys, we love him. He's a doctor and a trapeze artist and just an all-around awesome dude. Hi, Aaron. Thank you. All right. Equally beloved, Mandy Gifford. Thank you, Mandy. Karen Alden. Emily Fontenot. And Anna Vishtashik. All right. Thank you, guys. Love you. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Um, the last thing I wanted to tell you is that if you are in the New York City area, I am having a secret murdery supper club. <laughs> yes, you heard that right. It's a true crime-themed dinner party on February 23rd, and tickets are $65. You're going to get catered food, like good catered food, drinks, a speaker, new best friends, 
and all the proceeds are going to go to the Women's Prison Association, which is an organization here in New York that helps women during incarceration and after incarceration because female prisoners have very specific needs, no surprise, and the uh, the prison system is really designed for men. So this organization helps with those the specific needs of female um, inmates and um females after they get out of prison anyway i would love to see some of you there there's a very 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 tiny limited amount of tickets but if you want to grab one go to true crime table one that's the number one true crime table one dot eventbrite.com and that's eventbrite uh event and then b-r-i-t-e okay i'm gonna put this link in the show notes too because that was confusing all right love you guys so much thank you for listening Please review on iTunes if you feel so moved. Um, Follow on Instagram to see photos of Anne Helen Byrne. And I'll talk to you next time. Next time, I'm really excited, as always, because I'm going to tell you about a woman who is... This is sort of my favorite type of episode to do. Someone who is very close to a very famous crime, but you probably haven't heard of her before. Okay. Love you all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being so awesome. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.